following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for God prepared beforehand that we should walk in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You guys doing okay? Okay. Um, a couple weeks ago, I, I gave a friend a Bible, um, kind of new to this whole Christian Jesus stuff, and so I was like, hey, here's a Bible, I've got, you know, in fact, if you need a Bible, why don't you go ahead and take one of those pew Bible homes with you, pew Bibles home with you, plenty of them. Um, Bibles are, are such a crucial piece of what we do here at Sacred City. All of our ministry is sort of based off the Bible, what the Bible teaches, what Jesus teaches, how to structure our lives, what Sunday gatherings should kind of feel like, what we do here. Anyway, I gave a friend a Bible, and as I gave it to him, I was like, listen, there is a lot of really wild stuff in here. And I don't think we realize this, how wild and sometimes obscure and just sort of bizarre the Bible is. I mean, like, just think about this. By Genesis chapter 3, there's a talking animal. And, and it doesn't just happen one time. Later on, there's a talking donkey. You go through kings and judges. Um, you see basically the, the Israeli equivalent of Captain America, Samson, who's just like able to take on armies by himself. Like I'm not making, this is like, this is stuff out of like Hollywood just gushes over this type of stuff. We've got virgin birth and acts. There's a couple places actually throughout scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, where you've got like this, I don't know, the, the closest thing that I know how to call it is teleportation. Like somebody's literally extracted from one spot and dropped into another. There's not a lot of explanation what's going on here, but you read it and it's like, this sounds like teleportation. And you're just wondering what in the world is going on. And last week we came to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and we started talking about zombies. Okay? Zombies are biblical. Um, and that's because as we opened up Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is speaking to this church that he helped plant uh, way back. Um, he's, he's 
removed from them by distance, a couple years apart from them, and he's writing this letter that we call the the letter of the Ephesians um, to help strengthen their faith, to help tune them into some of the realities of their life as they now are walking with Jesus in this new identity that they received in the gospel. And and the message of Ephesians chapter 2, it's got this really bad news up front, and then it's got this good news that follows behind it, and they have to be paired together. It's two sides of the same coin here. He says that you were living life, you were walking around doing life, but you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Because life before Christ, this is for everybody, this is, this is the, the condition of, of humanity in its fallen state, regardless of how moral, how ethical, how good of a person you are, you were living trapped in sin. You were living an inhumane anti-life, right? That, that's kind of, you think about a zombie. What does a zombie do? It's an inhumane anti-life. They're out to conquer, to destroy, to, to ruin life as we know it. And so here Paul's saying you're, you're living like spiritual zombies, going with this strong current of the culture. Now this is... What he's saying here, like, there's this group mind this, this, of the general population. There's this group mind mentality that we will naturally veer into unless we are pulled out by the grace of God. So that we, we a, a, in our fallen state, we veer into this group mind mentality rather than holding fast to the mind and the heart of God, what God teaches in his word. That's just our, our, and we even talked about this last week with our, our tendency to suppress the truth right? We, we drift into the group mind over God's heart laid out in Scripture. We carry out the desires of the mind and the body, right? There's this fleshly, sinful desires that are, are it's not just an, an external thing following the path of the culture, but there's something inside of us that's broken. And because of this reality that, that we're just sort of seeped in sin, there's this deadness, this spiritual deadness that we are like the children of wrath, people who are deserving of God's wrath. Now that's the bad news of Ephesians chapter 2. And then there's the best news of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 that in this back, uh, the backdrop, the dark backdrop, the light of the gospel just rips through. And there's this good news here in Ephesians chapter 4 verse uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, You are dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, here it is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Paul says, listen, you were dead, but God made you alive. This is, this is some of the best news that we can come across. God actually sees us in our zombie-like state, in our spiritual impotence, and he moves towards us. Now, the way that we talk about salvation, we talk about being saved, it's lingo that we use here in the church, but really, 
to, to flesh that out, like the imagery here that Paul wants us to have when we talk about being saved is literally going from being in the grave, being dead people, to now being made alive in Christ by the grace of the gospel. That's, that's what it means to be saved, to, be, to go from death into life. And what Paul really wants us to see is that the, the whole, like, this is not something that you can generate in your own life. You cannot, a dead person cannot undead themselves. And same thing is true here spiritually. Spiritually dead people cannot undead themselves. And so God steps in, he moves towards us, he sets his grace on undeserving people. And one of the ways that we talk about this, like being saved, is to know God's forgiveness. Like he, he forgives us of all of the sins that we walked, we once walked in the, the sins and our trespasses. God forgives us of those sins. And then, and, and then there's also this future orientation that because of this saving work, I no longer live like a dead person that I once was. Now I step into life with Christ. It changes my future. It changes my present reality and, and transforms my future. Now, what we're going to do here as we look at, at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 again this week, uh, we're, we're looking at the same text, but we're going to come at it from a different angle. And my goal this morning here, my aim in, in coming at this once again is to, to help us understand what exactly grace is. This passage in these three verses, excuse me, these 10 verses mentions grace three times. Paul, he, he's saying, hey, God being rich in his mercy because of grace. So like, you were dead. Christ made you alive. God made you alive in Christ. And he reminds us here, it's by grace that this has happened. And then he goes on and says the same thing in, in verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he goes down and he says, listen, this isn't your doing. Um, actually, verse 7, he says that so that he might show. He's doing all this. He's making, taking you from dead people into people who are alive with Christ so that he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace. So here Paul is trying to show us. He's trying to put out in front of us this grandiose picture of what grace is. He wants to blow up our definition of grace. The problem here, not, not maybe a problem, but I think this is one of the tendencies that we have, is we, Paul here, the immeasurable, like if you think about that, literally, if you were to try to get a tape measure out and, and measure God's grace, you couldn't do it, right? You, you get a laser, whatever, you know, they got those laser tape measures now, which are pretty sweet. You couldn't do it. There's not a laser that goes far enough to measure. Paul is trying to put out this bigness of God's grace. He's like, let me explain. Now, our problem here, or our tendency is to take the bigness of God's grace, the immeasurable grace that God has toward us, and to truncate what that means, to kind of to shrink it down into something that's less than what it really is. And so Paul here, really, this passage, I mean, when you can get over like the bad news of you were dead in your sins. Like if you're still caught up on that, it's gonna be hard to move forward. But if you can get to the good news, if you can see the grace of Jesus meeting you in your undeserving state, you can start to see how big, how beautiful, how amazing God's grace is. In fact, that's why John Newton wrote that, that hymn, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? He, he had this interaction with God's grace in such a profound way that he was captivated by it. Now, the same is true of the Apostle Paul. Paul, 
is dubbed the apostle of grace. No other writer in the New Testament talks about grace more than the apostle Paul. It's like his, if he had one song to sing, Paul sings the song of grace. And you, I want to speculate here, um, and this might be kind of tricky <laughs> to talk through, but it's probably because nobody had a personal experience uh, that was bigger than what Paul experienced of God's grace. Now, to help get your mind around this, because God's grace is big and everybody has equal opportunity to experience this, but, but there's a sense of he who has been forgiven of much loves much, right? He who has been experienced more grace responds with a heart bit of more and more gratitude. That I think that's true with Paul because before becoming a Christian, uh, before becoming an apostle of, of Christ, before writing over a quarter of the New Testament, Paul did not like Jesus. Paul was a high-level Pharisee. So, so Christianity wasn't born out of nothing. It, there, there's, there's this sort of a, a lineage, a heritage of, of Jewish thought. We've got, we, like our Old Testament is the Jewish scriptures, right? There's this, this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But if you're sitting right there on, on the cusp of the turn of the covenant, so, so when it changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it, it has to be a little bit of a confusing moment to and, and I think that's where Paul found himself. He saw this uprising of Christianity, this Messiah Jesus who came, who demonstrated what the kingdom of heaven was like, uh, and, and, and he taught about the kingdom of heaven. He showed what the kingdom of heaven like, was like through miracles and all of these things, giving um, a little glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. And Paul saw this, and, and his mentality, because he's steeped in Jewish tradition, He's invested his whole life in going up the ranks of Judaism into becoming a sort of a Pharisee, right? A top dog in the Jewish temple. And he sees this new faction, what he sees or perceives to be this new split off of, of Jewish people now coming to faith in Jesus, proclaiming allegiance to him that he is both Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God. And Paul had big issues with this. Right? He, he thought this was blasphemous. He, he thought that as a Pharisee, as a Jewish leader, he thought that the best thing that he could do, the way to honor God the most would be to shut this down, to kind of put Christians in their place, to stop this movement from going any further. And, and you just see this, like Paul is steeped in this sort of works-based religion that Pharisaicalism sort of produces, right? That... One of Jesus' rebukes for the Pharisees as he's making his way throughout his ministry is how they have created these new rules for themselves that sort of, as you're able to follow them, it sort of takes you up a notch. You prove yourself to be more worthy, more deserving, that, that you're closer to God the more rules that you can follow. And so this mentality is just what, what is shaping Paul's mind, this sort of works-based religion that you have to earn God's favor by doing a bunch of stuff. And Paul here, he's so steeped in this idea of works-based religion that he thinks he's actually honoring God by persecuting the church. So much to the point where the, the first martyr, who's Stephen, I think in Acts chapter 7, you're introduced to him. He, he's, he's about to be stoned, killed for professing Jesus as Lord and Savior, of proclaiming the gospel to a bunch of different people. And Paul is, is pictured there holding 
his cloak so other people can throw stones at him. As you follow the narrative of Acts, like I don't have time to do it all, but, but actually Paul isn't just like having this personal sort of interaction with Christians where he's hostile towards them, but he's wanting to stop the entire movement. It's so much so that he goes to this place, Decapolis. It's kind of like it was a hub in that time where all the ideas, all of the new concepts sort of flow in and through this place. He was trying to get there first before the Christians got there to stop any of this gospel nonsense from spreading. But guess what happens? On his way to that place, place on the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and knocks Paul off his horse. So this enemy, this enemy number one of the church, the person who is responsible for killing the first martyr, who is wanting to put the church, put an end to the church, Jesus shows up to this this dude named Paul, and he reveals himself to him, gets blinded, like this light is so bright that Paul can't even see his scales fill his eyes, he can't see, he's blinded by Jesus' glory, and Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? So Paul here, right away we see Paul, he's not on God's team necessarily, he's not on team Jesus to start. He was anti-Jesus. He was persecuted. In fact, Jesus, this is what, how it works, this, this concept of union with Christ, that, that if you're in Christ, Christ is in you, that there's this union that happens through faith. Jesus says to Paul, when you're persecuting Christians, when you're persecuting my people, it's as if you're persecuting me, myself. Jesus is being persecuted. That's how tight this bond is that Jesus has with his disciples. And so Jesus said, hey, why are you persecuting me? And instead of that moment, like it would have been, like Jesus could have come down with wrath in that moment, right? Listen, Paul, you're in the way. I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to take you out. You're donezo. You can't stop it. But what happens? Instead of meeting God's wrath, Paul meets God's grace. See, when Paul talks about we were at once, we were once enemies of God, he knew, like he really knew what that meant for him that he was opposed to this Jesus who came and died for the forgiveness of sins. Instead of wrath coming down, Paul receives this gift of grace, and, and something happens that's so profound, he's transformed. So this thing that he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses, that you're walking, following the course of the world, that you're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's now at work in the sons of disobedience, walking, living into the passion of the flesh. Paul is saying, listen, that was me before I met Jesus. I thought I was doing all the right stuff. I thought I was doing like the normal religious stuff and kind of elevating myself to get in tight with God. And Paul realizes all of that was nothing more than following to like living into this zombie life, the spiritual death but God makes him alive. Paul experienced, brought from death to life. He receives a new heart. In fact, Paul talks about this. I've got a new heart. You've got a new life. If your life is in Christ, you've become a new creation. He's experienced this. And with this new life, this new heart, this new creation, Paul also receives a new purpose. His life Changes His agenda in life changes. He becomes about God's grace. Now, later on, as we get to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's going to break this down a little bit more. He's like, I, he, he, and this is what he says in a nutshell. He says, I received God's grace so that I could make God's grace known to the masses. 
So Paul realizes, listen, I wasn't saved just, you know, to get one foot in the door of heaven, and that was it. Paul realizes, listen, God saved me. He showed me his grace so that other people could come to know this grace that I've experienced by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. In fact, the, the news that Paul carries with him is this gospel of grace, this good news of God's grace, that God meets undeserving, spiritually dead people and makes them alive. And as he says that I've received this grace to give this grace, he's pointing to the givenness of grace. Grace, we ask the question, what is grace? The, the first thing we should, oh, grace is a gift to be received. Now, it says this here, it says, by grace you've been saved, uh, through faith, this is verse eight, and this is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. It is a gift from God, not a result of works. See, Paul says you cannot earn God's grace. This is, this is where the mindset of his Jewish upbringing, how he had been indoctrinated in this, this pharisaical worldview of trying to get up through the ranks by performing, by being a good moralist, of doing all the right things, following these religious rules. And here, it's a completely different proclamation. It's not by your works that you've been saved. It's by the grace. It's a gift given to you from Jesus himself. It's undeserved. It's unconditioned. You cannot posture yourself in a way to make yourself any more deserving of this gift. And re religiosity kind of twists this and starts to think of grace as God's favor that's given as a sort of merited compensation. So if I do this, this, and this, and this, if I, if I tithe, if I show up to church on Sunday mornings, if I do this in my life, right, if, I, if, I, if I adopt all of these rules, then God sees me more deserving and he'll compensate me for all of what I've done, all of my works with this grace. Well, Paul says, no, no, no. That's not how grace works. It's a gift. It's given only to unworthy people. See, that's the crazy part about it. Like grace, the only, the only thing that can qualify you for grace if you realize that you're unworthy of receiving it. And that's what Paul comes to this realization of. It's this givenness of it. And he even says that I am the least of all the saints. He, the Apostle Paul, the dude who wrote over a quarter of, of the New Testament says, I'm not worthy. I am the least of all the saints. And what he's trying to show us here, that because Grace is a gift. There is no room for swagger in the church. The church ought to be the most humble, most down-to-earth people on the face of the planet. Like this sense of, listen, I didn't do anything to earn it. God, in fact, God saw I was in a spiritually dead zombie state, and God moved toward me. It wasn't anything that I did. So there's no swagger here in Christianity. We're humble recipients of this gift of grace. Now, this gift that's given, um, you might say that, that I'm going to try to get into this a little bit more next week, but there, there's a sense where gifts, the way that you receive gifts is based on how you're culturally conditioned, okay? 
So we live, if I were to give you a gift, um, I would give you a gift and I would basically have no expectations for you. Uh, maybe to say thank you and that pretty much is the end of it. Like, and you get the gift and, and you don't necessarily feel indebted to me. Like there's no sense of, of reciprocation that needs to happen. You don't need to go out and get me a new gift right away. Like none, that's not really at play in our culture. But there is this sense where um, in, in this original audience's culture here, um, gift giving it was unconditioned, meaning that you didn't do anything to deserve it. But when you got a gift, there was a sense where there was an expectation to sort of reciprocate, an expectation to sort of um, not necessarily earn it, not to, to, to um, one-up the next person, but to acknowledge the specialty of that gift and to appreciate it, to value it, to utilize it in a special way. And so when Paul says, listen, this gift of grace has been given to you, um, there is this this cultural expectation of how are you then going to use this gift? How will this gift now come to bear on your life in a way that it changes you? And Paul's life gives us a picture of this. See, God doesn't just pour out his uh, unmeasurable grace on Paul, and Paul just keeps doing everything that he was doing before, right? He doesn't just settle back into the to life he was living until he met Jesus, Paul's life changes. He starts to reciprocate uh, this gift that God had given him and lean into grace. He receives this grace, and then he puts it into use in all of his life. He becomes all about it. And this is the thing about Paul, is that when he receives God's grace, he's all in. He's like, this gift surpasses anything else that I could accomplish in my life, anything that I could try to attain myself, anything that anybody else could give me. This is the top notch. This is the, the, the creme de la creme, the, the crown jewel of, of the cosmos, and it's been given to me. Now, if, if this is Paul's view of this, it makes sense why grace would completely reorient his life, why he would go from being a persecutor of the church, being enemy number one of the church, to now he is one of the biggest advocates for the, the mission of God moving forward in the world. Not only is it reaching um, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but it, Paul is really responsible for the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, for the Western world hearing about the good news of Jesus. Now, this is because Paul has seen the surpassing worth of the grace of God. It's just like, and when you have access to that, it just changes the way that you live. Like if I were to give you $100 million today, if I were to drop $100 million in your bank account, you, I, I'm almost gonna guarantee it, unless you're like super stingy kind of a person, that is going to change the way that you live your life. That's going to change your outlook on things, right? So when you get that, that unexpected medical bill or, or you got to fix a transmission in your car, right? You're, that, that moment of, of, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay for this? You don't have that sense of anxiety in your, in your heart that's going on. Like that, that mentality of scrambling to make ends meet, that, that's not going to be part of your, uh, your daily life anymore. It's going to change your outlook, but it's also going to change the way that you live. More than likely, you're going to go buy yourself a house, maybe buy somebody else, buy your mama a house. Go buy a new car. You're going to use this money. Hopefully you're going to tithe. I pray if I give you $100 million, you're going to tithe back to Jesus and make this church, uh, you know, more effective for the, the reach of the gospel. That's a hope of mine. But, but if you get that, that deposit, that $100 million, that's going to change the way that you live. Now, now Paul here, his view here is like, there's no amount of money in the world that can topple the riches of God's grace towards us in Christ. 
For him, the gospel surpasses all kinds of worth and value of money. In fact, in Philippians 3, he talks about, uh, I, I do all this, I live my life, I've reoriented my life because of the surpassing worth of knowing the grace of Jesus. And so now his whole life is transformed when he experiences the grace of God. He lives his life on mission, telling people about the same grace that he himself has received. Now, you might say it like this, Paul experienced God's grace in a way that blew up his life in the best way possible. It blew up his life, completely changed everything about him. Now, if I don't think that what happened with Paul when he experiences the gospel, I don't think that's an isolated event. In fact, I know that there are many people in here that can testify to the reality is when you experience grace, it brought you out of an old way of living and set you into a new course, right? It changed you in a fundamental way. And if God's grace is meant to blow up our life in the best way possible, we have to ask the question, what's so amazing about, what is it that does this? What, what, how does grace work? Or what, what, what is it about grace that makes it so amazing? Now, When we ask this question about grace, like what is grace? I think our tendency is to kind of draw back on some Sunday school answers, which Sunday school answers, let me tell you what, good for Sunday school answers. We probably say, what's God's grace? Well, we say it's God's forgiveness. Um, He forgives me of my sin. Yeah, that's God's grace towards me or forbearance. It's like I'm kind of a bonehead. I I keep doing stupid stuff over and over and over again, but but God seems to have some sort of patience toward me, forbearance with me, shows me grace in that way, right? I think those, those are pieces of God's grace. We might think of God's generally nice disposition or his goodwill towards us, right? That's God's grace toward us. Now, all of these things are part of God's grace, all of these things are facets of God's grace. But, but to leave grace just as that is to, to have too small of a definition of grace. It's that, but it's so much more. For the Apostle Paul here, and this is communicated throughout the entirety of the book of Ephesians, and so it kind of, it's like a, a, it's a, a thread that runs through the whole letter, and it doesn't have one specific passage that just, boom, lumps it all together. It, it runs through the whole thing. But for Paul, the way that he sees grace, the way, way that Paul understands grace is fundamentally a supernatural life-giving power. Grace is a life-giving power. Now, I say it's supernatural because it's a power that's beyond us. The origins of grace are only found in God himself. In fact, it's part of of who God is. You think of of back in the... uh, in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord God is one. He talks about uh, uh, rich in mercy, abounding, is gracious, steadfast love. Right, this is part of the essence of God. It's part of his character. Grace is of God himself. And it's part of God's power. And, and really the connections that Paul wants to see here is in chapter 1 when he starts talking about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, right? He's trying to connect this reality of God's power to, the, to, to grace. He's trying to make us see the connection of God's power works out through his grace. It's from God. It's of God. It's given to us now, the thing about powerful things is they can be used in positive ways or in negative ways. They can, they can be used to destroy or they can be used to build up. 
Now, when God's power is used um, in the negative way, right, that's kind of the, the idea of wrath, right, when the hammer comes down, that nobody wants to be underneath that hammer. But when God's power is used in a positive way, it's used to restore, it's used to bring us back from death to life. It's a life-giving power. And what Paul wants us to see here is this life-giving power of grace overrides all other powers in the physical and the spiritual realms. For this to make sense, right, to have these categories of of dark spiritual powers, of, of powers of darkness and this power of grace, power of light, we really have to understand that sin is more than just doing naughty things. Sin is more than just doing what's forbidden or failing to do what we ought to do. It's not just a misstep. It's not just a miss of the mark. Sin is a power that is exercised over us. Now, the reason why we do those things, the reasons why we do sins of commission, like we do bad things, and then we, why we fail to do good things as omission, is because in this fallen state, we are enslaved to the power of sin. This is a category that's hard for us to get our minds around here, and I want to explain here why. But Galatians chapter 4, Paul talks about this. You were enslaved to your sin. It's a power over you. You're trapped by it. Romans chapter 6 talks about it. In fact, this is something that goes all throughout Paul's writings. He's talking about this power of darkness, power of sin that's working over us. It's almost like a puppeteer. Right? It's making us do the things that we don't want to do, and most of the time we don't even see how it's at work in our lives. We're held captive to it. it we're it, it like even unknowingly dragged around by, the, by this. Now, when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, and it talks about this, I mentioned this last week when it says, you're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the darkness of the air, or whatever that is, the, following the prince of the power of the air, this idea of following is too soft, okay? What it really needs to, the imagery it should invoke here is to be drugged by, to be ball and chain, being drugged by these powers. You're trapped, you're forced by these powers. There's this sort of oppression that's taking place when we live in the fallen natural world which we occupy right now. Now, to help us wrap our minds around this, this is one of the reasons why we have the story of the Exodus um, back in the Old Testament. Um, if you're not familiar with it, God, God's people um, had, had enjoyed this prosperous um, season where God had multiplied them um, inside of Egypt. It was a really long story. I can't even get into all of it. But inside of Egypt, God saved his people, delivered them from famine, and, and they multiplied to thousands and thousands to millions of people. So God's people here now nestled inside of, of Egypt. And what eventually happened is Pharaoh became threatened by the vast quantity of God's people, of the Israelite people, and Pharaoh started to oppress them and to enslave them. And they started living the lives of slaves, doing Pharaoh's bidding, building uh, the pyramids, building these infrastructures, building the society, and, and really it's all built on the backs of the Israelite people. They're stuck in this. Now, th- there's this sense of, of slavery there that you just can't, it's so oppressive, there's no, you can't even think of escaping. Like you want, you don't want slavery, but you're just stuck in it. It's, it's like you're trapped in it. 
Now, the Exodus story is meant to be sort of a prototype, sort of give us an imagery of what's going on on a bigger cosmic scale. That this Pharaoh character who's responsible for enslaving and really leading a diminished life for God's people is played by Satan in a cosmic, uh, on the cosmic stage here. This cosmic dark ruler is exercising a power over God's people to keep us trapped, keep us distanced from God, to keep us from living the life that God desires or intended for us to live and keeps us under his employ. And this tyrannical reign is powerful. It brainwashes us. You see this even as as God delivers uh, his people from, from Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and they're wanting to go back to slavery in Egypt. Like there's a sense of brainwashedness that happens. The, the tyrannical powers, like, like, it, it removes the desire to escape. It, it removes the, even the hope of escaping. And little by little, it slowly snuffs life out of people. In fact, this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that slavery to sin will always lead to death. See, that's what it is. That's that's what Paul is trying to communicate here. The power of sin that's at work in this world is oppressing us. Depending upon your upbringing here, of what kind of a church background, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church at all, this is going to sound like weird stuff, talking about these dark cosmic powers, right? For most of us. It is for me. I grew up very conservative, Lutheran. We didn't talk about that. We were very non-charismatic, it wasn't part of my vocabulary. I didn't have a, a category for these things. I knew Satan was a bad guy there. I knew there was evil. But to think that there were dark, oppressive powers at work, I didn't have a category for this. In fact, some of this might be so weird that this weirds you out even more than talking about zombies, okay? Because we're talking about these evil forces that we can't see, evil forces that we're blind to. And, and, and part of this is just a cultural reason. We live in a, a demystified culture, a culture that has sort of um, emptied the supernatural, emptied the unexplainable from everything. So what we do is we downplay the spiritual, we downplay the things that, that aren't necessarily tangible so that we can find a natural explanation for things. So, so our culture gravita- gravitates towards physical evidence, towards um, science to explain things, except for when it's not, uh, it doesn't, assu- doesn't suit the, gen- the agenda. Um, so they, they want these natural ways of explaining things. But here's the problem is that we aren't just physical creatures. We, aren't just, we don't exist in only a physical dimension where physical answers, uh, or where there are physical problems with physical answers. To, to approach life this way can be unsatisfying and unhelpful, and really, in a way, it can hinder true growth from taking place. It's like trying to fit a square peg through a circle hole. It just, it doesn't work because there's something, there's this intangible aspect of our existence that we just, it's, it's the, like he talks about being a mystery. There's something mysterious about it. And when we take this naturalistic worldview and we approach the scriptures, this affects the way that we read and understand the Bible. So for an example, when, you, when we've come to chapter 1, and Paul talks about Jesus being far above the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, what we tend to think is that Paul is talking about like physical earthly rulers, like countries and governments and, and societal structures and human institutions. 
Now, that is partially true. Those are, there are physical, um, tangible rulers and, and powers and authorities in this world, but the original audience was not demystified. The original audience that Paul is talking to had this awareness, the spiritual awareness of the mysterious. And so when Paul was talking about these powers and authorities, they would know that it's these physical powers like the governments and human rulers and institutions, but also that there are spiritual powers, spiritual uh, dominions, spiritual authorities at play, and oftentimes they are what is working behind the scenes using these physical um, entities to do their work. This is weird stuff. This is weird stuff. This is stuff that I... I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around personally. But Paul here is saying, listen, when it comes to these powers, when it comes to these principalities, the, 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 um, the authorities, it's not just physical. There's a spiritual dimension to this, this equation here. And he gets at this in verses 1 and 2 when he says that we were once following the course of this world, right? We were once following the prince of the power of the air. That's what he's pointing to. These dark spiritual forces, these cosmic powers at play. And listen, we may not even be aware of them. We don't know what they are. We don't know what they do. We don't know how they work. But what Paul is doing here is saying, listen, guys, Behind this fallen condition, behind the way that we once lived according to the desires of our flesh, is a dark power. There is the prince of the power of the air, the Satan. And it's behind our social um, structures, it's behind our political structures, it's be- behind work cultures, it could be behind family dynamics. There are all kinds of places where these dark spiritual powers are taking place. It's prevalent. In fact, that's why Paul uses um, the, the title for Satan as the prince of the power of the air. It gives us this idea that it's all around us. It's in the air we breathe. It's a reality that's there even if you can't see it. Now, I'm not saying that the devil's behind every bush. Like this morning, I went to brew a pot of coffee. I didn't put the coffee pot in all the way right, and water was going everywhere. Coffee was ruined. I literally have more grounds in the coffee pot than are left in the little receptacle that's And I could be like, oh, it must be the devil. Devil made my cock. No, no, no. That's not the devil's not behind every little thing. He's not behind every little book, but uh, bush. But Paul is saying here, there is this aspect. There is a spiritual dimension to your life, and you may not be aware of it. There is an invisible reality that is operating through human structures and institutions that influences our surroundings, our culture, our politics, our work dynamics, our home lives. It even infiltrates our desires to sway us into living a certain kind of way. It shapes our habits, shapes our worldview, it shapes our relationships, it shapes our desires and our longings. See, Paul is saying, guys, like, we're not just in this natural, physical world. There is a spiritual dimension that that adds a layer of uh, complexity to what we're dealing with. And as you read through the scriptures, it's very clear, especially as you get to the end of the Bible, that there is a cosmic battle going on a battle between light and darkness, between good and evil, and it's taking place right now, (laughs) right now. It's taking place right now in this world, 
It's taking place right now in governments and societies and institutions. It's taking place right now in people's hearts. This cosmic battle. And it's likely we aren't even keyed in on it. Now, it's so important for us to be keyed in on it. That, that's really what Paul is, like as he writes Ephesians, as he goes through Ephesians chapter one, showing the power of God, showing the power of God in grace, going to talking about the powers, the principalities, the rulers. He gets to Ephesians chapter six, he's talking about spiritual warfare. Paul is really trying to help us understand the spiritual dimensions of the life that we are living right now. And he tells us that we're not at war. This is not a war of, of flesh and blood. It's not flesh against flesh and blood against blood. It's a cosmic war against the spiritual powers of darkness. Now, obviously, this is happening where the church is being persecuted. Like we can say, okay, here is, here is a manifestation of the spiritual powers of darkness coming against the spiritual powers of light, right? Mm church persecution. But that's not the only place where this happens. This happens in our normal day-to-day -day experiences, and oftentimes it's more subtle, more co co uh, covert, 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 covert than what you think. It's sort of under the radar. Like, it happens without us realizing it. And Paul is trying to help us see, listen, here's where you might be running into the powers, the authorities, the, the things that sway you in your life, things that we tend to give natural explanations for that actually have a spiritual nature to them. Now, I, I could spend, I don't even know where I'm at in time, but I could spend a lot of time sort of unpacking, and I've been wrestling through this, trying to think of what this looks like, how, how these dark spiritual powers might be at work in our world, and a lot of it's speculation, but I think that there is a strong case to be made about how this is at play in some of our lives right now. And one of the ways I think is prevalent in our society, dark spiritual forces are at play in the work of addiction all kinds of addiction, whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's sex and pornography, whether it's food, whether it's consumerism and accumulating goods, right? There's this sort of addiction that has to be puppeteered by these dark spiritual forces. Now, psychology will say, listen, it's probably genetics, and there might be an aspect of this. There's a genetical disposition towards certain things, certain proclivities. Um, and it might say there's a chemical dependency that's going on, a chemical imbalance going on in our brains, which there's likely to be some of that too. But it's not just that. There's actually a spiritual dimension to the things that addict you. I mean, even think about this with your phone. Like, most of us are addicted to these little bl black screens that we've got. You don't even know. You get a moment, you pick it up, and guess what? When you're, when you're addicted to something, it just consumes you. It dominates your mind. It's what you're thinking about all the time. It, it dominates time. It dominates your resources. You get obsessive about it, and guess what happens? You start putting things on the altar to sacrifice to that obsession. You, like your phone, for example. If you're addicted to your phone, you're addicted to social media, you're going to put real relationships with, with real human beings on the altar to have some sort of digital persona. And guess what happens then? There, there, what's easy to happen, and this is what I feel in my own life, there's a sense of sloth and laziness that addiction can kind of create, a complacency. 
It, it makes me numb to the things that God has intended for me to experience. It makes me defenseless. See, that, that's what addiction can do. It's the spiritual power that pulls you in, that traps you in a spot where you feel you can't do anything, that you're helpless against it. It just dominates you. Now, another aspect of how this might be at work, this is a conversation that we had in our missional community last week of how dark powers might be at work within our relationships. Okay, so I, our, our battle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. So, so when we look at another human being, our battle is not against them. We don't hate that person. We're not going to war against them no matter how bad that person has, has hurt us or wounded us or whatever it might be. The, the, the power that's behind this, the, the dark thing that we're waging war against are the spiritual dimension of these dark powers. And you can sense these dark powers at play when you're stuck in a toxic relationship. A relationship that feels like you're just slowly being drained of life. You feel trapped. You feel helpless, right? There's sort of slavery in and of that relationship itself, even, even in, in some of the ways that we've been conditioned growing up. Like, the culture of your home, if it's not rooted in Christ, Right? If, if Christ is not your governing uh, reality in your home, there are dark spiritual powers at play that are shaping you, shaping your kids, shaping you as a person to live a certain kind of way. And when you step back into those places, you feel the bondage, you feel those chains, those shackles come back over you in those moments. And, you, and as hard as you try, you cannot break free of them, it feels like. You try to, you know, 12-step program, you try this and that, you try to focus on this part of your character, you grind and grind and grind, but you still can't, there's still this power that's being exercised over you that you just can't break this habit. You can't get out of this mindset behind that is a spiritual reality that's slowly squeezing the life out of you until you're left like a shell of a human being. Now, there, there is a physical way. There's a way to treat these things as if they're merely natural phenomena, right? They're, you can get momentary relief, and, and some of these, I'm, I'm not bashing these things, like counseling and rehab and finding certain safeguards to put up uh, to distance yourself from certain people. Like, those might be helpful um, means of, of working, of getting out from underneath that, but those things in themselves, behavior modification in itself will not uh, vanquish the power that's being exercised over you. In fact, that's one of the reasons why if you go to AA, you, you've never recovered fully from the power of alcoholism. You're always an alcoholic. It's whether you're in recovery, remission, right? You, you, you're sober or you've, you're back into it. Like there's a sense that that power is still present. It just could be dormant. And this kind of captures the reality of, of these spiritual powers at work in our life, that it's there. It, it, it could be there. We could fight against it. We could distance ourselves from it. We could feel like the chain, we've gotten some slack in the chain, but there's still this stuckness about it. There's this helplessness about being trapped under the power of thumb, uh, 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 helpless to the power of sin. We're stuck underneath Satan's thumb. That is what it means to be dead in our sin. It's this power that holds 
us down, like we're being drowned. We're under this dark power. See, it's, it's this dark power that is just destroying the cosmos that the power of grace stands opposed to. See, God's power of grace is rivaled. The power of darkness, the power of sin, rivals God's grace, but it is no match for the power of God's grace. Because God shows us his power in his grace by doing the death-defying work of sending Jesus for us, who was placed underneath the thumb of the power of sin on our behalf. See, Satan, Jesus willingly let Satan put his thumb on him and snuff him out. That's what the cross was. The cross was Satan trying to snuff out the power of God. Jesus became our sin. He put ourself, he put himself in our shackles and says, sin, do your worst. And the worst that sin can do, the worst that the powers of darkness can do is kill you. And kill you is what they did to Jesus. Jesus was killed on the cross, like dead, dead. Spiritually, physically, Jesus was snuffed out. If sin, if the power of sin were left unchecked, it could just run its course, Jesus experienced the wave of that power smash into him. But Paul says there's something else going on spiritually in this moment that, that we maybe don't see. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he says that it was by Jesus being nailed to a cross that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. Now this, guys, this is the upside-down gospel here. This seems backwards here because by all counts and measures, it looks like Jesus is the one who's being shamed. Looks like Jesus, the one who's naked, who's being mocked and ridiculed, his flesh torn apart, nailed on a cross. It looks like he's the one that's being put to shame. But three days later, after Jesus was dead in a tomb, God's power worked to make him alive, resurrecting him so that death could not hold him down. And it is by this Jesus disarms the rulers and the authorities and the powers, and he puts them to shame. See, the grace of God, the power of God, trumps all of the spiritual powers of darkness. And verse six says this, listen, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus, you are raised with him. And, and check this out. Verse six says this, okay. It says, he, um, even when you're dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him. Say with him. And seated us with him. Say with him. Yep, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So right now, and guess where Jesus is right now? He's far above. He's seated in the heavenly places, far above every power, every authority, every ruler, every dominion. And where are you right now? Right now, you are raised with him and seated with him. See, this is the great reversal of the gospel. This is what grace does in your life. It takes you from being a slave under the power of sin and frees you. It liberates you, but it doesn't just unshackle you. See, the gospel takes us and elevates us from this, this measly position that we once had where we were slaves of sin and sets us as rulers with Christ. That we are with him in his glory right now, ruling and railing in this spiritual sense with Christ. 
that we are untouchable. If your faith is in Christ, you have been made untouchable by the dark spiritual powers. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to brush up against them. That doesn't mean that there's, you're not going to experience spiritual warfare. But it means that everything that comes against you is ultimately going to be worked for God's glory and for your good. See, this is the power of grace at work. Frees us from bondage, brings us with Christ, unites us to him, raises us with him, sets, seats us in the heavenly places. And so now we go from being enslaved to empowered. This is why grace is a supernatural, life-giving power. We have to view it as this. It's not just this thing. It's a power and God sets it upon us, and he saves us. He brings us from life to death. But this is also at work in our lives day to day that helps us to say no to sin, to push against the cosmic powers of darkness that are at work, trying to veer us away from God because the thing that those dark powers are about are undermining and usurping God's rule and reign, both here and in the heavenly places. And it's by this supernatural grace, this power, that we live into this new life that we have with Christ. We become more fully alive. We push back the darkness. We fight back with adequate tools because, listen, behavior modification, this is why, listen, if you're trying to do discipleship, trying to follow Jesus, trying to make much of Jesus in your life, and all you have is, is behavior modification, you are going to be ill-equipped. You're going to find yourself in a spot where you just can't do the change that you think God wants to produce in your life. It's because you have to have the spiritual power at work in your life. And that's what the gospel does. It gives us access to God's raw power of grace. There's no other way to do it. And this is the driving thing of Paul's theology here in the book of Ephesians is, listen, guys, we get to tap into God's immeasurable power. It's not against us. It's for us. It's life-giving, and you see it here. You were once dead in your sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By the power of grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the reality of this gospel news, that, that it is not just forgiveness, though it is forgiveness. It's not just for, forbearance, though it is forbearance. It is this supernatural power that, that, that we can say we have access to, and because we have access to it, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. We have everything that we need to, to navigate a life that honors you, that lives into the kingdom of heaven here and now, that helps us to live fully alive as you have made us. God, we pray that you would help us to interact with this gospel message, this, this power of the gospel, not just so that we would be saved, but we would give ourselves to the process of being saved in the this, this sanctification of becoming more and more Christ-like that the glory of Christ will be made manifest in our lives here in this church and the glory of Christ would shine in the darkness. God, would you do this for our good and for your glory? Help us, strengthen us, give us the ability to, to call out for help in this, this grace, this power of grace as we need it. And would you graciously supply that? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 